Well, if you have your Bible with you, I would um, encourage you to open to Exodus chapter 20. Um, we'll be looking at the last of the commandments this morning, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And uh, you can find that in your pew Bible on page 54, page 54 of, uh, of your pew Bible. So we've made it. We've made it. The last, the last 10 weeks, uh, we have been uh, looking at the Ten Commandments. And as we've seen uh, these past few weeks, as we've, uh, as we've looked and studied the Ten Commandments, I think we've realized a really, uh, really important truth, that there's so much more to these Ten Commandments than just what is written on the page. Um, as important as these commandments are, we've, we've seen time and time and time again um, that there's, there's so much going on, perhaps underneath the surface of these commandments. Um, that <laughs> these are words of life. And I think it's helpful to remember as we finish our series here on the Ten Commandments, um, that <laughs> these commandments don't just um, suddenly appear here in our text and in our Bible. These come within this broader story, the history of, of Israel, of God's chosen people, and how um, he has delivered them from bondage and from slavery in Egypt how he's provided for them in the wilderness. And now they're here at the, the foot of, of Mount Sinai. They're questioning God. They're wondering, God, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you trying to show us? What are you doing? How are you working in the midst of our, of our lives and amongst us as a people? And so... Um, Moses, the good leader, the good mediator that he is, he, he goes up and he meets with the Lord who speaks these words, who speaks these commandments to Moses, and Moses is to pass them on to the people. I think we, we got to understand that these aren't just words that God calls us to obedience in his word because he calls us to remember what he has done for us. He's provided for the Israelites. He has provided for you and for me. And so that is how, that is why we find life in God's commandments. God is near and he is relational. So this morning, I want us to kind of make three movements as we finish our series here on the three commandments. I want us to look at uh, look at the commandment, to look at it, to hopefully understand what this command is saying and be able to apply it to our hearts. I want us to perhaps see what it is that we need to do to truly be content, to truly be satisfied in the Lord. And then I think we finally need to understand what it means to live a life of commitment. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as, um, as we finish up. But Exodus chapter 20, 
Verse 17 says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but um, as we begin to unpack this commandment, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't know if I always know or realize when it is that I'm coveting. Because there's, there's, there's something going on as we understand this commandment and, and as we understand ourselves that you and I as people are called and, and we, we desire certain things in our lives. And that a lot of the times the things that we desire are good things. We desire good things. Not always, but some of the time. And so as we get to this commandment, it, it's, it's a, there's a little more of a gray area almost. <laughs> to some extent, you can measure, you can quantify whether or not you've committed murder or committed adultery or you've stolen or you've given false testimony against your neighbor. And to some extent, you can, you can measure, you can quantify the idols that you've perhaps placed in your life ahead of the Lord. But this commandment's a little tricky. <laughs> this commandment's a little tricky because we can't always quantify when it is and how it is that we covet. In the original Hebrew, this word for covet simply means desire. It's a neutral word. It's, it's, neither, it's neither good or bad. It just means desire. But when placed in the context of a neighbor's house, a neighbor's wife, his male or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything else that might belong to him or to her, that is when we covet. One commentator I read this week gave just a very succinct, a very nice definition of what coveting is all about. It's a consuming desire to possess in a wrong or a misguided way something that belongs to another. A consuming desire. To possess in a wrong or a misguided way something that belongs to another. Maybe to help us think about coveting, to think about this last commandment, I think it might be helpful to, to have a, a certain litmus test of, so, of sorts. Something where we can perhaps check our desires to kind of see where our hearts are and, and how we need to align them. And so here are three questions, three ways uh, that we can perhaps see the desires of our heart to see where and how we are coveting. Number one, are we preoccupied? Do we spend too much time? Do we spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about that thing that we, that we want or that we don't have? Are we preoccupied? Are we restless? Can we not focus? Can we not give our attention and give ourselves 
to our people and to work and to the things that are already in our lives because we're so focused on what we don't have and how much we do, in fact, want that. Number three, are we jealous? Do we compare? Do we compete with others for the stuff and the things that we want and desire? Are we trying to keep up? Are we jealous? But perhaps more than anything, more than any, any self-made test that we can kind of give ourselves to check our desires, you and I need the work of the Holy Spirit. You and I need conviction. We need the work of the Spirit. But we also need to be mindful and to some extent question to see the ways that we are trying to covet. If you notice the commandment, you see that it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or his female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I think there's maybe this this misperception that coveting is just an issue between myself and God or between yourself and God. That it's my heart, it's my mind, it's my desires and, and God. But this commandment is, is speaking to the way that if our desires are wrong, if they're misguided, if they're sinful, how it can affect the relationships that we have with people in our lives. I'm reminded of Genesis chapter 4. story of Cain and Abel. The, the, the very first account of murder in scripture. And if you remember that, um, that account, remember that Cain and his brother Abel offer sacrifices to God. They offer these sacrifices and for whatever reason, the Lord accepts Abel's, accepts Abel's offering and, and looks with displeasure at Cain's. And within Cain, it, it, it stirs up the, the jealousy, the preoccupation that we just mentioned, I think. Cain is so focused on the fact that his offering wasn't good enough. He was looking at the thing itself and not looking at the God that the sacrifice was for that he completely missed out. And out of this, this misguided desire, out of this jealousy and this anger, murders his brother. Coveting is not just an issue between ourselves and the Lord, but if it goes unchecked, it can negatively, sometimes profoundly affect the relationships that you and I have with others. Perhaps one of the biggest truths that we see about coveting is that we are never, ever satisfied with the things that, that we want and the things that we have. We live in a consumerist culture which pushes the next biggest and best and nicest thing. And there's always something more. There's always something better. I remember in seventh grade when uh, I got my first cell phone, uh, I got a singular wireless. If anyone remembers singular wireless. Singular wireless flip phone. And I was so happy to have it. Thought it was it was great. Have my first cell phone. 
text call. Does anybody remember the game Snake on the, on the old flip phone? Anybody remember that? You could play Snake on my cell phone. thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Too bad that a few months after I got my first cell phone, the first iPhone came out. Right then and there, I knew the iPhone was cooler, it was better, it was nicer. And so, I wanted it. I wanted that. Um, it wasn't until college till I got that iPhone. I had to wait a little bit. But then you think about your iPhone and you think about pretty much every week, it seems like there's a new update for something better and something nicer and to add to your phone. It's the culture that we live in. It, it's, it's what is pushed. It, it's, it's what's presented to us. I'm reminded of, um, of an interview that I saw not long ago, an old interview, uh, a 60 Minutes interview. It's Tom Brady, and he sits down with uh, 60 Minutes correspondent Steve Croft, 2005. Tom Brady, the New England Patriots quarterback, has just won his third Super Bowl. He's in his mid to late 20s. Um, he has reached, in a lot of ways, the pinnacle of his career. He's, he's done it all. An MVP, three Super Bowls. And so he's talking with Steve Croft on, C, on 60 Minutes, and they're having just a great conversation about life, about football. And um, Steve Croft asks, well, you know, what's next? What's next for you? And then Tom Brady responds back. He says, gets a little uncomfortable almost. He looks straight at the camera and he says, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be something more than this, right? To which Steve Croft replies back. He says, well, do you have the answer? Tom Brady says, I wish I knew. And shrugs his shoulders. I wish I knew. He's won three Super Bowls. By the way, he's won four more. He's playing at age 45. I can't imagine that. A guy who seemingly has it all. All the money and the success and fame. But there's something more. There's something more. See, there's a truth in this commandment here that you and I long for something so much more and something so much better than any tangible good that this world has to offer. I mean, you think about it even just in the context of this commandment. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Underneath this commandment, we long for protection and provision and for comfort. We long so desperately for it. And not coveting a neighbor's wife or spouse, you and I long for love and for relationship and for companionship. For a male or female servant, we long for control, authority, freedom, autonomy. An ox or donkey, the, the, the things that made life and work easier for the Israelites in an agrarian culture. We long for things and technology that... <laughs> will make our lives and will make our work easier and more comfortable. We think that if only I could have that, if only my life looked this way, 
if only I didn't struggle with this, if I could only go back and do it this way, then, then I'll be satisfied. There's a beautiful promise, I think, in and perhaps through this commandment. That because our Lord is near and relational and knows what we need, he is not holding out on any of us. He's not holding out on us. That he blesses and he provides in ways that we don't always understand, but that are always for our good. And so you and I need to learn (laughs) the secret of contentment, if you will. And I think there are a lot of ways that perhaps we we could go about tackling how to find, how to experience the contentment that the Lord provides. But I'll, I'll offer this just for this morning. I think we need to be a people who are committed, devoted to prayer, devoted to God's word. I think specifically, we can take so many of our cues, the thoughts and feelings that we have in our lives, and we can look to the book of Psalms. This wonderful prayer book, this guidebook for all of life, prayers, confessions, and songs, and laments to God about what it means to be a person, what it means to long for different things in our lives. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 107, 9, for he satisfies the thirsty, and he fills the hungry with good things. Psalm 145, 16, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of all living things. And on and on and on it goes. True true contentment, true satisfaction is found nowhere. It is found in no one other than our great and mighty God. We won't, we won't learn how to be a, a people who desire God first and foremost if we aren't willing to practice our prayers and practice our worship and practice our giving and practice everything in our lives. We won't be able to be those type of people overnight. But again and again and again, we have to commit ourselves to these disciplines commit ourselves to be this type of people has to be learned. Um, Flip with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 4. That's page 832 if you need it in your pew Bible. We've looked at what it means to covet, perhaps how we covet, what it ultimately means to be a people that are content and satisfied. But I think we're missing something too if we don't go even a step further than that. If we don't understand what a life of commitment is all about. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. So this is Paul writing to the Philippians. He's given them great encouragement 
He's thanking them, blessing them for the ways that they have supported and partnered with him in ministry. Paul writes, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord, in verse 10, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Paul is exceedingly thankful for the money and for the support and for the things that they, the Philippians have blessed him with in his ministry to spread and to advance the gospel. But you get to verse 14. <laughs> and through the rest of, of the section that we just read right there, and you see something profound. Paul is not just thankful for their, for their things and for their stuff, but he is thankful for their very lives. Because the Philippians have committed themselves so much to Paul and to his ministry, they are willing to give themselves away for Paul's sake. And Paul is rejoicing and is so thankful for that. You and I are called similarly to give ourselves away. To give our time, to give our resources, to give our gifts, to give our blessings, to give everything away. The satisfaction of life is not about letting our desires go unchecked or in getting and acquiring all the things that we want or the things that we think we need. But it's about giving ourselves away for the sake of others. Just two chapters before in Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives us the ultimate example of what this, of what this looks like. Giving away Speaking of Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with him something to be used to his own advantage. He made himself nothing. He took on the nature of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. For our sake, so that we might have life and have life and salvation in his name. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful, Lord, that you have called us to be a people, 
Lord, who are to be content in you, for, Lord, you satisfy and you fill us with good things and with good desires. God, we thank you that you call us to give ourselves our lives away for the sake of the gospel. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be a people of prayer, to be a people of your word, to be a people of worship, to be people who steward our gifts for the sake of others and for the sake of your kingdom. We offer this prayer in Christ's name. Amen.